0: Exciting story from the cl- clinical forefront uh, in this field. And we're going to hear from uh, Professor Martin Birchall, for, who's a professor of neuroscience at Bristol University. I think the story is... Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry? Yeah, okay. Um, uh, I think what we're going to hear about is, uh, partially at least, is... Uh, what has been uh, also exposed a lot in in the media, the transplantation of a tissue engineer airway basically where I think the the key thing here is basically using an airway which has been decelerized and uh, and actually reconstituting the cells of of the tissue with the patient's own cells and partially using probably at least stem cells for that. uh, the, the work, uh, though, is also based, uh, I think, a lot of, uh, on the basic, a lot of basic research on trying to understand basically how one can basically reconstitute and reiterate uh, head and neck structures in, co- uh, in connection with surgery, which is a ma- major uh, uh, problem, so welcome.
1: Dan, thank you very much indeed. Um, thank you, Charles, for inviting me. And uh, uh, I, I was going to say lords, ladies and gentlemen. I think it's a baroness, in fact, I believe, unless I she's here. But anyway, it's, it's a great honour to, to address you all, and um, particularly to see so many kids here today. Kids, you're not quite kids, so most of you are almost there, aren't you? Does anybody want to be a doctor? Any of, any of you lot? Fantastic. Well, I hope I don't put you off. I'll, I'll, try, I'll try not to. <laughs> OK, let's see what i was- From the beginning, like that. That's good. Just check this. This does go forward. Okay. Right. You, sir. Who's this? Oh, come on. Who is this? Any, any of you? I'm deeply disappointed. Sorry. It's, it's King Edward. Okay. Edward the Confessor. This is, I think. Am I in the right place? This is, I think this is St. Edward's School, is it not? Oh, uh, and he, he was fantastic. He was probably the, the, um, the most popular king we ever had. Or queen, for that matter. Because he cut taxes and he decided on diplomacy instead of war. Which really is, was quite a novel thing in those days. And so... I was I was reading about him last night, and it said, and there were no wars during his time, it was complete peace. And right down the bottom was a little footnote and it said, Unless you count the ones against the Welsh. Now I don't I don't know why that was, but for some reason they singled out the Welsh for speckle, special attention. And I, I particularly wanted to mention him because I too went to a St. Edwards School. I went to rival St. Edwards School to a Catholic school in Liverpool where they all talk a bit like this. And it's a bit infectious actually. So if I break into it, then tell me and I'll translate. Um, St. Ed was in Liverpool, uh, we were a very good rugby school and we won the Oxford Sevens quite a number of years in my, my time, but very bad at rowing and I know you're very good at rowing here, aren't you? You're excellent. So It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, there's an awful lot to say about this and I won't try and cram it all into one talk. I'll try and keep it succinct. Now, for those of you who are going to medical school, if you look at the range of potential jobs you could do at the end, it's huge. And so at some point, you do reach... Well, you reach a number of these, actually. A number of uh, waystones, a number of uh, markers, where you have to take a choice uh, as to which way you're going to go. And one of the fundamental um, signposts is whether to go into medicine or surgery. That's, in fact, medicine's broader than that. It's pathology, radiology. But we do at some point have to decide whether to become surgeons or not. And by its very nature... The sort of people who tend to go into surgery tend to be different from those who choose to go into medicine. It's a different sort of thing. You need different characteristics, different qualities, different drives. And so as a result, what you end up with is not necessarily people who are all exactly the same, but who all have some common qualities. And I think one of the most important common qualities is a degree of certainty and faith in what you're doing. It's slightly different from the physicians who, who can have a whole week in which is comprised entirely of ward rounds and they can spend the whole time thinking about things. We often have to make very quick life and death decisions. So You have to have certainty about where you're going to, whether you're going to operate on somebody or not. and You also have to have the certainty to make that first cut in the first place on what is, after all, a living, breathing person with a soul beating underneath the skin. These qualities, i put it to you, are very different from those necessary to go into basic science. There, the whole nature of basic science and science in general is uncertainty. A measuring degree of uncertainty. To completely prove something is almost impossible. Not quite as difficult as to completely disprove it. But nevertheless, you're constantly measuring uncertainty. You're constantly coming up with more doubts. You prove something, you develop more doubts. So, my old boss, John Farndon, who's a professor of surgery in Bristol, used to have a picture on his wall of a bridge. And at one end of the bridge were the surgeons. With their certainty and their determination, and I know what's right. I'm going to do this. And at the other end, with a scientist thinking, well, where, where can we go from here? Well, we, we've got to develop down this route, down this route, test this hypothesis, quite rightly, develop. And without any of that science, we would not be having any of these discussions here today. So, sort of diametrically opposed individuals. So, where then are the scientist surgeons going to be? Those people who actually want to introduce science into surgery and move it forward. And they're in a very lonely place. They're in the middle of the bridge here. It's a slightly rickety bridge. And believe me, it's blinking wobbly at times. Because you're here. And you're neither one thing nor the other. The scientists think you're not a proper scientist because you've not, maybe not got a PhD. Because you've not spent all the years in laboratories. And, and it takes a while. And also, well, there are other, other reasons too. And at this end of the bridge down here, you've got the surgeons who say, this guy cannot be a proper surgeon because he's not cutting all the time. And what's he doing? Thinking about things. You know, he's, he's, off, he's off there trying to talk to these other fellas. So it's a lonely place and many people get discouraged along the route. But for those of us that persevere, the rewards can be very great, I think. And for one such person, the rewards have led to what we now know as modern-day transplantation. Uh, and this is James Murray, um, who was the guy to first perform a human organ transplant. Now, he believed it was possible to do it. And on the basis of limited animal experimentation, believed that he had sufficient evidence to go ahead and treat people for whom there were no real hope in those days. And so he performed the first... And in fact, the first few operations did not go well at all. Patients died. Immunosuppression was was very poorly developed in those days, very poorly understood. Many of the patients died not only from the operation but from the side effects of the drugs. But they persevered. They incrementally improved things. They studied these patients. Every patient who was transplanted they studied to make sure that the next one would not be quite as bad. And eventually they got it right. But he had to make that leap, a big leap of faith based on the certainty that what he was doing was right and that he would probably get there in the end. If, however, he'd stayed purely in the laboratory at the other end of the bridge, answering every single question until he was absolutely certain, beyond all doubt, that we could do renal transplants, he would never have done it. And the same apl- applied to Christian Barnard. His heart transplant patients all died, bang, 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 bang. And perhaps these days, particularly in the regulatory environment of places like the United Kingdom, this would never have been possible. Perhaps rightly so, you might argue. Nonetheless, without what Christian Barnard did, we wouldn't have heart transplantation saving lives today. (coughs) But there has to be some sort of exchange for this. It's always been the nirvana for surgeons to create life out of death. And that's where the drive for transplantation came from, I guess. But it goes back a long, long way. Um, So anybody guess where this illustration comes from? If you've read my abstract, you probably can guess, but... It's from a famous book by Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley? Yes, it's Frankenstein. It's one of the original illustrations of Frankenstein. And by the way, for those of you who are studying English and so on, you'll note that Frankenstein was not originally a horrible monster with bolts coming out. He was actually supposed to be a, a really kind of beautiful, fantastic, Apolline individual. A bit like me. <laughs> but anyway, I've sadly deteriorated with time. But, although apparently he was slightly green in colour. Which might have put you off, I don't know. It depends on the lighting, I guess. So, the point here was, this is based on um, an ancient Greek myth of Prometheus. There are actually two Promethean myths, but I don't want to confuse you too much, whereby um, a a junior god basically tried to create life uh, without the permission of the more senior gods and was therefore condemned forever to suffer. The idea of an exchange, that if you really try and do something like this, play God, create life, there has to be some sort of exchange. The exchange in this case was that this body gradually deteriorated and there's a message there, like dolly the sheep's cells, which of course were taken from an old sheep and therefore were already old to start with. and That's possibly why she developed arthritis at an early age. But also the side effects that we get from transplantation also. So there is an exchange to be had when we transplant patients, the Promethean exchange, if you like. And for the majority of people in clinical transplantation, the exchange is well worth it because it's life or death. It's a life of incredible, incredible low quality of life strapped to a machine, or being able to get out there and do normal things. And for many, many, many kidney transplant patients, heart transplant patients, lung transplant patients, that's what they get in exchange. But they also have to go on immunosuppressant drugs. And on average, it reduces your lifespan by about 10 years, as well as all the side effects, which include the possibility of getting more tumours in the body and high blood pressure and all sorts of other side effects that you don't really want. For other, others, however, perhaps the balance is not so clear. And it was very interesting you asked that question earlier on about the arm. Here's somebody who's had both their arms replaced. Okay. It's bilateral arm transplantation. It can be done but is the exchange really worth it for these individuals? The first person who had it done actually begged to have them removed in the end because the mobility wasn't quite right, the sensation wasn't quite right, and they didn't look right. So for, for somebody like this, perhaps the exchange is not worth the immunosuppression just for quality of life. And of course, there's a big shortage of, do- of transplant donors and transplant organs for transplantation. So how are we going to get around this? Well, I think you'll see the the theme emerging, that one possibility might be in the future to use tissue engineering and stem cell-based therapies as a way around this sh- organ shortage and the exchange we currently have between the side effects of immunosuppression and getting a new organ. But there's a lot of hysteria around um, stem cells, um, as we were hearing earlier from Sir Richard, a lot of hype. It's almost as though there is no middle way with the media, with all due respect. That either things are really awful, so stem cells will cause you to mutate, um, or you just shouldn't do it at all, or they might turn into tumours or so on. Or, on the other hand, if there's a minor success, it's trumpeted as being the answer to everything, and we're on the threshold of, of And to a certain extent, that's what happened to us, uh, much to, to my embarrassment in a way. Now, here's one of my heroes. This is a guy called Theodore Billroth, who was an Austrian. Austrian surgeon, in the mid-19th century. And he was a really great guy. He was one of the the great surgeon academics. And he realised that things were changing at that time rapidly, so that he had to introduce flexibility and the ability to understand research and knowledge into his trainees, so that when they became surgeons, they too could adapt to changing times. And that's something that's sadly being stripped out of surgery at the moment, but that's another point altogether. So he had the first training programme in Europe for surgeons, and he also put in scholarship. They had to learn stuff and be able to do research and use their brains as well as their hands. He also was the first person to do a laryngectomy. He did the first um, uh, stomach bypass operation and all sorts of other things too. But he did the first laryngectomy, which is where you take the voice box out for, for cancer. Now I trained as an ear, nose and throat surgeon and took special interest in head and neck cancer, particularly. And the problems faced by patients who had neck, head and neck cancer, which is a horribly disfiguring condition, which can leave you without the ability to talk. You look funny. You may not be able to swallow properly. Uh, without a voice box, you can't smell, you can't taste. You can't lift heavy objects because you need to, to trap air in your lungs to do that. You can't strain. Uh, you can't, can't even kiss properly because you need air going through your mouth. You can try this at home later. Or maybe you guys will try it later on behind the bike sheds. I don't know. Uh, but. To, So, for me, this was a major, major problem. That whilst we may be able to get on top of the actual cancer cells in due course, and in fact, we have ways of doing that, which I'll show you in a minute, that actually getting people back to normal functioning as human beings was very, very difficult. And taking the larynx out, which is a great cure for laryngeal cancer, with very high cure rates, leaves people with all these problems. Here's somebody who's had a laryngectomy here. He's had his voice box out. And you end up with the windpipe coming straight out onto the surface like this, and you can swallow down the back here. Now, these guys can talk by using little voice valves here, by, uh, which have been developed by engineers. Uh, but it's by no means perfect. And most of these people would prefer an improved quality of life if they could get it. So I became intrigued by how we could replace all of these complex functions, which, after all, are many of the things that make us human beings. We depend on being able to interact. For so- socialization, eating, talking, smiling is all so important. So, um, well, we are now able to get on top of head and neck cancer in many ways, not least by using chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Um, However, uh, so I'm trying to make it move forward, actually. Uh, These have terrible side effects, too. And although we can get people now to keep their larynxes so they don't have to be removed, they are very often no longer functional. You can't get air through them. See, there's no hole in the middle of this larynx here. This is the voice, voice, the vocal cord's all swollen. This person has to have a permanent tracheostomy to breathe through. So you can cure the disease, but leave a very pure quality of life. So although we now use chemo radiation in preference to surgery, I think we need to change things around. We need to develop surgical techniques which will do better than this and give better quality of life. So that was the drive, really. How are we going to replace? How do we replace bits of the body when they go wrong? Well, there's a number of things we can do. You can borrow bits from elsewhere what we call autologous tissues. Um, we've been doing this a long time. In fact, as we heard from Sir Richard, they were doing it in India to replace noses many, many, well, thousands of years ago. You can do, use prosthetics, plastic things or metal things. You can use transplantation, as we've been talking about earlier, or maybe tissue engineering in the future. Oops, i go back. Back, back, back. Oh, it won't go back. doesn't matter. The previous picture just showed, showed me doing uh, what we call a, a free flap, which is where you take a bit of the body... For example, to rebuild the jaw, you take fibula, which is one of the bones in the leg with a bit of skin on it, and you plumb it into vessels in, in the neck, and you reshape it using microplates, and you build it in so you can create a new jaw here. And It works very well, but it's, it's multi-part, and it does leave you with a weaker leg afterwards and skin grafts, and it doesn't work in people who have got vascular disease and so on. But nonetheless, we do have ways of moving things around the body, but not to replace something as complex as a voice box. This is Jack Hawkins. Does anybody know what film this was in? Because old, old, older patients, <laughs> and Bridge over the River Kwai. Bridge over the River Kwai. and uh, fantastic film. you know. see, they did make some good films in the old days. Okay, uh, Anyway, he was a fantastic Shakespearean. Speaker with a wonderful voice, but he got laryngeal cancer and had to have his voice box removed. And he had it replaced with a prosthetic larynx, which they were working on at that time in the 60s and 70s. But it really didn't work. And as a result of his trying this, he died directly as a result of the operation to put the prosthesis in. And nobody has successfully made a laryngeal prosthesis because you have to keep stuff from going down as well as allowing air to go in and out. Oh, it's jammed up completely now. Okay. Okay, so what about transplantation? Well, in 1998, a surgeon in America actually did transplant a voice box. Um, It was a guy who'd had trauma to the larynx. And this patient is still alive to this day. Uh, He was actually on the radio this week because we've been debating it at the college. Um, And he is able to speak. In fact, he works as a motivational speaker. His name's Timothy Heidler. Uh, But because they couldn't repair the nerves, he still um, has to have a, a, a tube to breathe through. And because it's a transplant, he's still on immunosuppressant drugs. So he has hypertension and he's at, his lifespan will be reduced in one way or another. Nonetheless, he has got over some of those problems. So perhaps transplantation might be an option under certain circumstances. And we spent a long time looking at this. This is really not working well. OK. Now, there are lots of reasons not to do it. Uh, the immunosuppression's a problem. Nobody wanted a transplant. Uh, it's just a mechanical in fact, it's not. And We can't repair the nerves, and it's very expensive. We heard the, the cost issues earlier. Well, we worked in pigs for a long time. Again, we heard about pigs. Pigs are a very robust model for working in. I don't like doing it because um, they're actually really nice. They're really, really bright. They're brighter than a lot of people, I've met, actually. <laughs> you can, they play football. Yeah. Yeah, you they actually play football. They're very, very good. Um, anyway, in a pig model, we were able to demonstrate that you could actually transplant a larynx, that you could actually make the vocal cords work effectively. But we still had the problem of immunosuppression. This is a guy called Tintinago. Uh, he's a surgeon in South America, in Colombia. And this is a friend of mine from America who we went to visit him. And everything I know about Tintinago, I know from my colleague because I've not been there. Uh, but he purports to have done lots of larynx transplants. Um, here's a, pa- a photograph of a patient. Um, but really, I'm only putting this up to make you uh, just beware what you read on the internet and just beware of everything. Question. Question everything, because this has not gone through the usual routes of science and publication. Okay? This guy's never published anything. He's entered these patients onto the International Database of Transplantation, but he's never published a thing. None of this this has ever been independently verified. He did, when my friend went to see him, he didn't show him any of the patients. When he asked him a question, he would lapse into broad Spanish and wouldn't answer anything. So, always question. And If something has not gone through peer review, That is, if it's not been studied by people who know something about the subject and they've come up with the conclusion that you have presented sufficient evidence and that what you say in that paper is valid, then you should really seriously consider whether what you're reading is correct or not. So Do beware when you're looking at evidence. Now, Actually, the voice box is a very complex thing. It has to deal with both breathing um, and with the demands of speech in man. Uh, and swallowing as well, so it has, has many, many movements. So reinnovation, making it move again, is very, very important. And one way of doing this is to borrow from Peter to pay Paul. And what we've been doing has been taking a bit of the phrenic nerve, which drives breathing, and transferring it across to the muscle that opens the voice box. So every time we take a deep breath, the voice box opens. And in the pigs, it works quite well. And in fact, we've just been doing that in people too. Um, unfortunately, it does take a very long time for nerves to regenerate. Um, particularly, something like the, the laryngeal nerves because they take a bizarre route down the body, around the heart, come back again. They go up to Birmingham and down the M4. So, by the time it actually reinnovates, the muscles are often atrophied. So we've tried putting nerve growth factors in to see if that helps. It does help, but it doesn't improve the functional outcome. We've been a bit stymied here because the muscles in the head and neck are so tiny and so close to each other that they, when they lose their nerve um, innervation. They suck in nerves from elsewhere. They're so desperate to have nerve supply, they'll suck nerves from anywhere, and the result is that you don't usually get something that functions properly. And that is a real problem with reinnovation. Nonetheless, we have done this in a few uh, patients who've suffered loss of vagus nerve with tumors, and you can get restoration of bulk and very good voice and better swallowing. The other problem we've had with the larynx is that it has a very rich immune architecture. And are, are, this is a multiple-colour immunofluorescence stain. It doesn't really matter. All these different colours represent different sorts of immune cell. So if you're going to transplant uh, an organ like the larynx, it's likely to be rejected by the body because it expresses immunity. It expresses itself so much that it'll be recognised as foreign very, very quickly. So it was at this point that we were starting to think, this transplantation log has had it, and then we heard about what Anthony Attaala has been doing. Anthony Attala, we heard earlier, has made a bladder for babies using thin collagen membranes seeded with autologous cells. And although the first few have not functioned that well, he too has persevered, much as Murray did, actually. And in fact, the function is now very good, although it's in fact taken four or five years of working on infants to do that, and he's now working on a few adults. So tissue engineering is actually here and can deliver results. So we thought, could this start to work for us too? Now, Working with a colleague of mine in Spain, Paolo Macchiarini, we'd been working for many years on airway transplantation, conventional transplantation. He's a thoracic surgeon, he'd been working on windpipes, I'd been working on the voice box, but they're connected. But we also started to do preclinical, that is, animal experiments, to see whether we could do something similar to what Antonia Atala did, but perhaps extend that a bit further by looking at the possibilities of stem cells too. And we were at quite an advanced stage of these preclinical experiments when this patient pitched up. She had airway TB in South America in 2005, which had been treated, so she didn't have tuberculosis anymore, and she'd had multiple operations in South America. Like many South Americans who, um, who have very complex problems, she was referred across to Spain for treatment. She had a stent put in. A stent is a bit of plastic or metal which holds something open, and that's great because once it's in place, air can go through the middle. But the body, as I've just said with Jack Hawkins, doesn't like bits of metal and plastic. It really doesn't. It develops tissue around the outside. It tries to heal over it. It tries to get it out, and so it, it's often not well tolerated, as with her. She was getting a lot of pneumonia, a lot of chest infections. Uh, Can these lights come down a bit? Anyway, things were very tight. Here is the normal side here. I apologise for how small this is, you'll see it much better very shortly, don't worry. Uh, This is the normal side and this is the narrow side here. And Because she'd had lots of operations to try and get rid of the bits that were tight, The airway had got shorter and shorter and shorter. They cut out more and more tight bits until it was really, very short. And it was pulling this up, yanking it up on a big blood vessel in the body called the aorta, which pumps arterial blood out of the heart, such that it really didn't work at all. And she was faced with losing this lung completely, right up to there. And the only therapeutic solution for her was to take the whole thing out and sew sew the remaining lung. Up to the bottom of the larynx here. That has a 50% mortality rate. Half the people die with that operation. And even if they survive, they have such poor lung function that they can never get out of the house again afterwards. And bearing in mind, she's a very young woman. So, we put it to her that we had this potential solution that was. At a very early stage. And I was very interested to hear what Zeng Fang said. I was interested in everything Zeng Fang said, actually. But I was particularly interested to hear his comments about China and Korea, where patients are more accepting. If they're in desperate circumstances, they might be more accepting of, of techniques like this. And certainly the um, administrative arrangements in Catalonia and Spain are far more permissive of this sort of thing than we would be in the UK. Anyway, it was fully discussed with her, it was discussed with the Catalan and um, the uh, Spanish authorities. And she was even introduced to the pigs. We even took her along to see the pigs. Showed that they were long term survivors using the technology that we'd developed. And so she decided to go ahead. There's a much longer story behind that, actually, because her mother had declined an innovative treatment, a cardiac treatment, some, some years before and had died as a result. So, actually, there's a whole, whole longer story to her. Anyway, so, um, okay, just to step back slightly. You've heard all this already, so I don't need to go into details. But in order to do tissue engineering, you need a number of things. You need cell, and you need matrix, which can be either synthetic or, in our case, autologous tissue. And you also need angiogenesis, which is not an Irish opera singer, as I originally thought. Um, And unfortunately, there's no film yet called angiogenesis. So as soon as they make one, it'll be up there too. Okay. So what we did was instead of creating a windpipe from scratch. We'd been working for some time on decellularizing uh, human donor organs. These are patients who are brain dead and are da- donating organs for other reasons. So they're giving their kidneys and hearts and lungs and things, but they also have other tissues too, which are not being used. And the trachea is one of them. The windpipe is one of them. So we'd been working on taking out the trachea and seeing if we could get rid of those parts of the trachea which would be recognised. By the person you put it into as foreign and therefore rejected. That is to say, we're taking it from what's called an allograft, something that you have to have immunosuppression for, into something that you would not require immunosuppression for. And there are ways of doing that. You can give it strong detergent, so fairy liquid. We didn't use fairy liquid, sorry. And enzymes, things which are enzymes, as you know, which will catalyze um, processes in the body, combinations and cycles. And there are lots of groups around the world who've developed this technique it 's not unique to us in, by any sense. What we had to determine was that by washing and washing and dissolving and dissolving, would we end up with something that had the cells stripped out and indeed it was, we could get the cells out. But would it be any use after that? or would it just be a load of old mush? You know if you lie in the bath for too long, your skin goes really white and mushy? You may not have done that. I, I certainly have uh, but the fact is that would we end up with something that had known biomechanical properties which would enable us to use it? And we didn't really know. So we put it through a number of cycles, and we kept testing it as we went along, to see whether these things called antigens, uh, these molecules, which would be recognized by whoever it's put into as foreign, had gone or not. And by the end of 25 cycles, they appeared to have gone. Actually not one. 100%, but 99.999%, and that's another question is as to whether she will actually develop antibodies to it later on in life. There's a question. And at the end of this cycle, thank God, it had normal biomechanical properties. So here, I don't understand this. I'm sure Zhang Fang could explain it to us in enormous detail. I, but the fact is, there are two curves here, and you, this is the length so you're stretching it, and you're measuring the force required to stretch it a certain distance, and it, here, superimposed, you can't tell the difference between our graft and a normal trachea. It had exactly the same tensile properties. So we were extraordinarily relieved. We've already heard what stem cells are, and I won't go into that. There are actually far more types of stem cells than that, um, but they're multipotent, and we've already heard a lot about it. And we've heard about bone marrow too. So um, we now needed cells. Now, the first sort of cell we needed was cartilage because the outside of the windpipe is cartilaginous. And you need that to give it rigidity and to hold it open. Otherwise, it will collapse. It so happens that cartilage is one of those areas where there's been a huge amount of interest and work for many, many years. And it's ahead of developing other cell types in almost every way because it's a way of treating arthritis, which we're nearly all going to get at some point and I've already got. So there are very good ways that are actually out there in the clinic already for preparing cartilage cells from somebody's own stem cells. And my colleague Anthony Hollander in Bristol is very good at doing this. So we were lucky in that sense too. We already had a group, a system, a set of protocols of producing cartilage cells from bone marrow stem cells already in place that we could apply to this patient. So we took some bone marrow from her hip um, and we, we grew it up. So, we first of all isolated the stem cells. There's lots more things in bone marrow than stem cells. So, there are ways of getting out those cells which are just the stem cells, which we did. And then we grew them into a larger number, as you've heard again from from my colleagues. Growing them up into sufficient number is a big problem. And here you can see us using the conventional type of method here, which was uh, uh, was available to us at fairly short notice. Although, I'll come to the more complex bit in a minute. And then... We we'll give them a growth factor, which made them, persuaded them to become chondrocytes. Again, this is the result of, of a decade of work. It didn't happen overnight. But importantly, if you don't give them the second growth factor, they carry on. These are, remember, these cells have potential for forming all sorts of tissues. One message is not enough to form a chondrocyte. It will carry on and form bone if you're not careful. So you have to give them a second one, a stop growth factor, once they form chondrocytes. We were then able to validate using um, some of the methods we've heard earlier, that we were dealing here with a pure uh, um, culture of chondrocytes. Now, because we tried to transplant larynxes earlier on, and the most um, allogenic, the most immunologically active part of the larynx is the epithelium, we had already spent some years growing up epithelium from patients. We spent a long time doing that. So that's what my group is specialised in. And we were able to grow up columnar ciliated epithelium. Now, although we initially thought this wasn't from stem cells, in fact, the bottom layer of epithelium does have its own little stem cells, albeit some way down the line. We're probably growing up these little stem cells here, actually. So these probably were from stem cells, but some way down the line from the kind of stem cells we've been discussing earlier. In any event, um, we have ways of growing epithelial cells. So, we took epithelial cells from this patient, and there are two potential sources. One is the nose, which has these cells with little cilia on for getting rid of rubbish, and the other sort is from the lung. We took both of those. In fact, the bronchial ones, the ones from the lung, grew a lot better. The nasal ones grew too quickly, in fact, and we were, they went through the passages too quickly. So, we used the bronchial cells and again characterized them, made sure that what we were dealing with were pure um, adult um, epithelial cells. And we had about 100 million of each, in fact, in the end. And again, we characterized them. Now, interestingly, uh, when we were later able to take brushings of our graft and brushings of the patient, we were able to find exactly the same characteristics of cells that we put in in the first place. So here were the original cells in culture. Uh, again, the same cells here, the red with the blue, are um, the cells. Just before the organ went in, and this here is at two days post implantation, where the cells were still present. Now we heard a little bit about bioreactors from Fang too, and there are different sorts of bioreactor: the micro ones that we heard, and the macro ones. What we needed here was a very special macro bioreactor, a box that would do some of the things that Fang was talking about: getting rid of all the waste, putting the nutrients in and allowing the cells to grow actually on the decellularized trachea. This is the decellularised trachea here. It looks just like a trachea, except very pale. And this is the bioreactor, which was developed by a group in Milan in Italy. And they had spent a long, long time sorting out particularly the oxygen uh, requirements of tissues in this, which we heard about earlier. It's so critical to make sure the oxygen crumbs are just right. And in fact, that, if anything, was the innovative part of this, because none of the rest of this stuff is at all in any way unique. All of these things are being done all around the world, by Atalurg's group, Langer's group, all kinds of people doing this. What we did was simply put existing technologies together in a row, we lined up the ducts and added a bit of our own in making a dedicated bioreactor that would do what we wanted it to do. You're very polite. It's nobody falling asleep here. It's because I'm looking at you. I'm very impressed. Very impressed. Um, now, The particular issue here was that we got two cell types. And so one bioreactor to fit all would not do. The growth requirements of chondrocytes are very different from those of epithelial cells. So we had to have in the middle of this tube a different culture environment from on the outside of the tube. It also had to rotate. It rotates so that you can get oxygen through. And also because rotation, the mechanical movement, stimulates the cells to grow in the correct way and to spread out in the correct way. And in due course, we hope, although we haven't done this yet, make the cilia beat the right way too. So that when you put it in, it shifts stuff out of the lung in the right way. So all of that. So we built this bear actor, which rotates. And we had a a very sophisticated way of making sure it rotated at just the right times. It was called medical students. We had a whole load of medical students and we just told to do it. (laughs) But I'm now pleased to say that we've moved on from there. And we now have machines. So there we are. Uh, and we found that you were able to, in non CD bioreactor, it looks like this, it's collagen basically. We heard a lot about collagen earlier. What you're left with is, is collagen, but with added factor X, in fact, which I'll come, come back to. And on top of this, we ended up with epithelium covering the surface very nicely. It was still pretty hairy though, because here we were faced in theatre, we had, we had a, 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 almost a point of no return. This is the the patient here. Um, We've collapsed a lung down here, so this is the the lung collapsed down to heart down here. Um, This is the airway here. There's the aorta. Um, There's a big nerve running past here, which is the phrenic nerve, in fact, and the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So there's a lot of clockwork around here. Um, And having taken out the damaged bit, we were then committed to doing something. And so we got it out of its box and and carried it across. And, um, And it was amazing because it. Not only we knew it had the right biomechanical properties, but we didn't know how it was going to take sutures, for example. And it took sutures beautifully. Such that we were able to generate... We poured water onto this, and it was a watertight seal immediately. We were immediately able to reinflate this lung. And, and we, we, we really didn't know what to expect, but it worked. And it might not have done. It was every risk that it might not have done. Now, when you looked at it straight away, of course, there is no blood supply to this. Unlike... The, when i rep- repair jaws we make strenuous efforts to make sure that the blood supply is restored here we have quite a big structure with no blood supply so at first it looked terrible you know it's all white and sluffy and looked dreadful but she was able to breathe down it but within a very rapid space of time within 2 weeks it looked like this and you can use something called a laser doppler to see if there's any blood flow we started to pick up a, bl- a blood flow at 2 weeks if you just put in just a, a raw tube made out of anything, be it collagen, people have done that, be it um, decellularized material without cells on it, and we've done that in pigs. You don't get blood supply within months. It takes about three or four months, in fact. If you just patch something and let it heal in by normal routes, you do get blood supply growing in normally, but it takes months. Here, within two weeks, we're starting to see something. And by a month, uh, you, you, could, you could take a biopsy from it, and it would bleed. So, this is what it looked like in CT scan afterwards. It's a reconstruction. But you can see that this side here is the same as this one, and you'll see it a bit better again in a minute. And again, on a CT reconstruction, this is what's called virtual endoscopy, where you can take scans of people and put them together in a way that you can actually travel down the tracks in various ways. So, a very nice way of planning for surgery. And here, this is the normal side. You could drive a bus down that one. Well, a very small bus. Very, very, very small bus, really. <laughs> She's now enjoying a normal life, and you know, when I talk about this, every time I talk about it, every month goes by, it, it is more and more incredible to me that she still is. But uh, she's been back to South America to see her sick grandfather for the first time for years, and she's caring for her two kids. Um, she initially engaged in some publicity work uh, at the very outset, but we don't trouble her with that anymore, because she just needs to get back to living a normal life as a mother. Okay, so this is what our airway looked like. It was very tight, um, and there wasn't a lot we could do about it. This was the donor here. It's got a little tag on its foot there, so it's dead. Uh, and this, this, this was actually uh, designed by an enge- a first-year engineering student at Barcelona University. This was not a professional. Did this? Um, we took out the the airway. We took all the cells out using various liquid and various other things. And. Then we took cells from her, from her hip. The hip is a rich source of bone marrow. Uh, We took cells from the airway and from the nose, although, as I say, in fact, the airway grew a lot better in the end, and expanded it until we had sufficient millions to seed back on again. And Then for four days, the cells sat there and expanded on the graft itself in culture. Peroperatively, it's shaped very nicely. This was really important too because one end of the bronchus is really very thin, whereas the trachea at the other end was very wide, as you can see there. Quite a disparity. Happily, it still had the elastic properties that were necessary to make it fit into the space. So we cut out the stenotic segment there and, uh, and put it in. I wish it were that simple. <laughs> that would be lovely. That would be lovely. But one swallow doth not a summer make. This is only one, one patient. And yes, the media have made a lot of this, but it is only one patient. And we have to now start remembering what I was saying at the beginning about the exchange. That here, yes, we did take a bit of dead tissue and created something which is, is certainly now living. But we ha- what is the exchange that we've made here? We've used stem cells about which there's a lot of uncertainty. And it's possible that there may be still some antigens left in that she might reject. However, she did not develop any antibodies uh, to date. And usually, if you're going to develop antibodies to a graft you're going to reject, you develop them within weeks or at least a few months. And we're now nine months down the road with no sign of any rejection, no immunological sign, and no antibodies. We also need time, too. We need time to observe. And again, here, I go back to what I was saying earlier about the balance between the surgeons wanting to get on with it and the scientists saying, hang on a minute, you, there might be a problem here. We do need to remember that. But the mere fact that we've now got lots and lots of questions... I mean, we really don't know why the blood vessels grew in quite so quickly, for example. Well, they certainly did. The mere fact that we've got lots and lots of questions doesn't mean we should bang the brakes on, I believe. I believe that now that we know it does work for people in a desperate situation, we should do it in more people in a desperate situation, but observe them very, very closely. We've heard a bit about bioreactors that Zheng Fang has been talking about and that we developed too. But the very best bioreactors, as Sir Richard very eloquently pointed out earlier on, are the human bioreactors themselves. And we really don't understand how they work. Because nothing's going to tell these cells how to develop and what to do better than their fellows in the right part of the body at the right time. So I think we do need to keep doing this at our present totally inadequate level of knowledge and study absolutely everything about these people take biopsies, use non-invasive imaging techniques, measure everything about them before it goes in and afterwards, and feed that back to the amazing wealth of basic science that we have in the United Kingdom, which is unparalleled in the world in terms of its ability to turn out high-quality science per head. There is nowhere in the world as good a Britain as that. And we need to study these people, feed the information back to them, and allow them to tell us what to do next, how to iteratively improve what we do, how to produce cells better how to reduce risks, and how to make different organs as time goes by. We need to work together. So where next? Well, this is what I'm saying. We shouldn't now put the brakes on. We should do more of these and observe them. What are called first-time-in-man studies? They're not full clinical trials. They're first-time-in-man. But use those to develop the necessary information to go to full clinical trials. And we need to know about immunity. We need to know about angiogenesis. Not an Irish opera singer. It's the formation of new blood vessels, muscles, and stimulators. How to make muscles and how to make them move properly so we might be able to get these limbs to work and larynxes to work. And what I would like to call the human bioreactor project, where we study what we're putting into people and get the maximum amount of information to refine what we're doing in the laboratory. And then we can do studies which will convince the prodigious, prodigious administration in this country that it's worth carrying on with. Okay. And there are many, many more questions. I'm nearly finished, don't worry. So we got there by joining hands and crossing the bridge by surgeons and scientists working together. And we mustn't now forget that. We mustn't now re-adopt our comfortable position at either end. We must continue to keep talking to one another because the surgeons will know the challenges. We must not, however, also forget the Promethean exchange, that with what we've done may come problems later on. Perhaps we will do 10 of these people and they'll all develop lung cancer afterwards we do not know. It's an exchange. We have to keep observing. But unless we do these things, like Tom, Joseph Murray and the heart surgeons before us, we will never get any further progress. But we are really just at the beginning. This is Claudia. She's now living a happy, healthy life. But it really is just the first few footsteps in the sand. And this is my favourite quote of all time. Actually, Albert. He was just a quote machine, Albert Einstein. He must have been fantastic to have dinner with. If anybody ever asks me, I don't know whether I'll ever be important enough to be asked actually, uh, who would I really like to have dinner with, it would be Albert Einstein, because he must have been a barrel of laughs actually. Seriously. There but anyway, he said, if we knew what we were doing, it wouldn't be called research, would it? We write research proposals saying, it's like this, we've done this, it's going to be like this, and it never is. It never is. You have to work with uncertainty in science, and that's something that surgical scientists have to deal with too. I've worked with a lot of people along the way, and all, all of these people, and many, many more have, have contributed to this. And thank you very much for your time.